welcome to the OT Digest podcast. I'm your host, Katie Kasparo, the founder of otgraphically.com, where I synthesize research into visually appealing graphics. On this podcast, we take research and make it more fun and interesting in order to quickly hear the most updated evidence all around the world. I interview authors, share research tips, and provide practical examples that I hope you can use and incorporate into your interventions the very next day. Thanks for listening. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the OT Digest podcast. We're back for 2022. Uh, Thank you all for listening. And we have a great uh, conversation and two people today on the podcast, which is awesome. It doesn't always happen that way. Uh, We have Rebecca Knowles and Kathy Cavalier here, um, and I'll let them introduce themselves a little bit more. So Rebecca, would you like to tell us a little bit more about um, what you, where you work uh, and what you like to do for fun? Sure. Um, welcome. Hello. Um, I'm an occupational therapist, a registered yoga teacher, and I'm also the training and research manager at Unite. Um, so my role at Unite is less in conducting research, but I do more um, coordinating, consulting, and managing ongoing projects, um, as well as developing training programs for OTs and other healthcare professionals. So um, on the side, I do some consulting on sensory room design, a little bit of teaching at Midwestern University in their MSOT program. And I'm also wrapping up a descriptive study with Dr. Katana Brown on sensory processing patterns and gender differences in substance use populations. Wow, that's, I didn't know all of that. That is really cool. And I love that you do consulting for for those um, rooms. Uh, That's a great service. Love that. And then what do you like to do for fun? Uh, well, I like to be active. Um, usually that means distance running and cycling and yoga. Um, I like to do some backpacking, but I'm pregnant. I'm in my um, third trimester right now. So that's changed my activity a bit. So it's been a more restorative yoga, walking, slower um, movement practices lately. How about you, Kathy? Would you like to introduce yourself a little bit? Sure. Um, so my name is Catherine Cavalier, and I am um, a full-time professor at Dominican College in the occupational therapy program there. I teach both research courses that we have. I am also the research uh, coordinator, so I coordinate all the projects that come in and out of the program alongside a colleague of mine. And I also teach adolescents, uh, the adolescents in OT practice class, which is really a class focused on mental health well-being in the adolescent population. So we talk a lot about, you know, trauma, sensory processing, um, and things such as that. I also have a private practice, a consulting practice where I consult with families. Um, At at this point, my practice is mainly, I would say, um, adolescent and young adult with sensory processing challenges and mental health uh, conditions. And I consult with them and with their families to support them, whether it be um, sensory processing wise or occupation wise. 
And that's what I do. I enjoy one of the things I love to do that keeps me sort of, um, that keeps my mental health on track is spin classes. I became addicted to spin after I had a really bad knee surgery way back in, I don't know, about seven years ago, I had to have a total knee reconstruction. So donor ligaments, donor cartilage, and it was a result of dislocating way too many times. I, um, found spin and I found a community of people that I really um, love spending time with and love um, exercising with. So I go there at least three to four times a week. And, um, you know, I, the other thing that I really enjoy doing is I see myself as a creative person. I, I know today we're talking about research, right? And many people think research is the opposite of, uh, you know, creative, but I sort of disagree in that I feel like each research project that I work on or each study is a creative process, right? It, it comes from thinking about what it is you want to study and why and developing a question and developing ideas on how to really best answer that question um, and the whole process that's involved in analysis and you know making sense of that information that you gather I think is really uh, creative and I think that's why I like research so much is because each year that I teach it I have different projects right so I, it doesn't get boring it's this, it kind of you know keeps me going I also enjoy you know decorating and and other you know creative outlets as well so that's me I love that. I love a good creative process too, as I'm sure, you know, um, and I'll definitely have to talk about home decor another time with you. <laughs> That's a personal favorite of mine as well. Well, great. Thank you so much. I'm really excited about this conversation. I think it is, um, really helpful to kind of talk through it as it is really complex. Um, I don't know if I've even said this yet, but we're going to talk about, um, polyvagal theory and the safe and sound protocol. Um, but before we kind of go into that, um, I thought we maybe should kind of start with what that means and what that is for anybody who hasn't heard of that. So if you, I don't know if either one of you have a good summary or quick, quick snapshot of what polyvagal theory is, and then also the, the safe and sound protocol. Ooh, I can take the first shot at it. Um, Kathy, I invite you to uh, jump in and help me where you can. Um, I love talking about polyvagal theory, um, but I find it is a pretty complex concept and um, sometimes uh, you can get into trouble oversimplifying it and so then you lose some of the nuance and beauty in it. So I'm gonna do my best to uh, provide some clarity around it, but also you know, leave space for the complexity. So um, I think I'll start by saying, you know, historically we've seen the autonomic nervous system as this uh, binary antagonistic on off state. So you're either in sympathetic or parasympathetic and that those two systems are kind of working ag against and with each other. But through polyvagal theory, um, through the work of Dr. Stephen Porges, we recognize um, three autonomic states, including a um, ventral and dorsal vagal division of the parasympathetic system. So um, he theorizes that this, uh, uh, these three states evolved secondary to our need for increased um, social communication and collaboration with other people in order to survive and you know, um, access well-being. So um, in the parasympathetic division in these two states, um, there's innervation to the subdiaphragmatic and um, superdiaphragmatic organs, each with unique functions. So if we think about um, finding the just right balance of energy and internal resources for homeostatic function and also for engaging with other people, um, we want to be able to 
you know, move the muscles in our eyes and face and head and neck. Um, there's, you know, innervation to support vocal prosody and changes in vocal intonation that really advance our ability to connect with other people. Um, so this is unique to a sympathetic state or, you know, historically thought of as the, you know, fight or flight state where we're mobilized and hyper aroused and have this, you know, flood of physiological changes that support our ability to respond to um, danger or to, you know, feeling of not being safe. Um, also unique to the dorsal vagal parasympathetic branch, that's the um, subdiaphragmatic innervation uh, that's more about shutting down or immobilizing in response to threat. Anything else you want to add, Kathy? No, you know, I think the only thing um, that I would add that, that I always find so um, interesting also is that, you know, it's it's not about being in one state or another, but it's about the flexibility and moving between states that I think um, really um, sort of connects us and speaks to the role of polyvagal theory in regulation and self-regulation. And that's something that I think um, is also interesting as well. For sure. I would even add to that, that I think sometimes the, the states get labeled as being good or bad or even functional or dysfunctional. And I know there's some maybe debate in the clinical scientific world about, um, about the states being adaptive, but from my understanding, they each serve an evolutionary and a functional purpose. So there are some times when our body really needs to mobilize and needs those resources to help us survive or even, you know, be at our best. And then there's other times when the body needs to um, shut down or conserve and restore resources in order to help us survive. Or maybe we're, um, um, you know, uh, recovering from an illness or we need to rest after a long day. Um, and then recognizing the third state of the ventral vagal parasympathetic state is when we're able to um, optimize our, you know, communication and connection with other people. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's helpful to just give a little bit of a context to as to what we'll be talking about. Um, now, how would you, so based on that theory, there is something called a safe and sound protocol, uh, from my understanding. And I would love to learn more about, cause I, I don't quite get the connection between the two. And I would love to learn, like, how does that theory then apply to almost like this, this intervention treatment? Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, Dr. Stephen Porges, who um, developed polyvagal theory, also designed the safe and sound protocol. So in his words, he um, describes the safe and sound protocol, or we just call it the SSP, as a practical application of polyvagal theory. So, um, so in the safe and sound protocol, we um, understand that different sound frequencies influence the nervous system in different ways. So theoretically, very high frequencies and very low frequencies can be threatening for the nervous system or our nervous system can perceive them as being unsafe. So in the safe and sound protocol, this is a um, five hour auditory intervention that um, filters out the high and low frequencies of sound to focus on those middle frequencies that are associated with safety and connection. So um, you can think about the relationship between mother and infant. And there's some um, really interesting work that came out just last year about the quality of a mother's voice and how focusing on those middle frequencies and um, using vocal prosody and changes in intonation um, is evidenced by um, 
better ability for the infant to regulate the nervous system using um, a heart rate variability as a measurement tool. So translating that to children, adults, older adults, anyone across the lifespan, um, theoretically by being exposed to those middle frequencies um, with progressing progressive widening frequency bands across the five hours, your nervous system learns to better tune in to those middle sounds to support um, safety and calming for the nervous system. Awesome. Yeah, that makes total sense. I think I missed a few of that, those points in between, um, just when reading the research myself. So that was really helpful. Um, great. Well, thank you for doing that. That I know that's not, that wasn't an easy thing to explain very succinctly. So I appreciate how clearly you, you talked through that, um, Rebecca. So now, um, can you tell us a little bit more about your research, Rebecca, and what your focus is and, and what you are studying right now? Sure. So I um, specialize in sensory processing and mental health. And through my role at Unite, I'm primarily interested in sound-based therapies and their influence on the autonomic nervous system, as well as some work in um, biofeedback, biometrics, and just um, assessment and mental health treatment. Um, so I just find, as, as Kathy said, that the autonomic nervous system is so fascinating and challenging to study because its influence on the brain-body system is so global, right? It, it mediates so many of our physiological, neurological, cognitive, and affective functions. So um, as we now understand through polyvagal theory, uh, the nervous system also influences our social behaviors and communication. So I'm really fascinated by that intersection, especially when we think about um, sensory processing, the nervous system function and behavior and how those three things are integrated. Yeah, Rebecca, I agree with you. I think it's, it's, so, it's so fascinating and, you know, it's been, you know, something that I've personally been interested in for like a really long time. And for me, it's really exciting to see how things have progressed over the past 10 years um, in terms of how this is becoming much more widely accepted, thank goodness, among not only the OT community, but among many other professionals who didn't always buy in. Right. And now I think we're seeing buy in from other professionals in terms of the intimate connection between the ANS and 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 behavior and emotion um, and now and also, you know, connection. I, I think what's difficult is, um, you know, and I think, you know, I'm not sure how much the science has progressed in terms of you know, connecting physiologic, neurophysiologic functions with behavior. I'm not so, so sure we've come super, super far in terms of that, but we're making headway. But I think what's also really important is you know, the qualitative piece to this because I think connection and the science of connection, which is again, what polyvagal theory is really all about as is um, SSP is, an individual experience. And I think that's really hard to quantify. And maybe in part, that's why it's taken us so long to move forward. Because I also think that qualitative research has only become, you know, has only become more widely accepted also in the past 10 years. So that, you know, I think as we progress in terms of what we understand, and as we progress in terms of what we find acceptable in terms of research, 
also as we progress as a society in terms of understanding um, neuro, you know, what is neuro, you know, divergence and what did that look like and how can we become more accepting of that? And that connection doesn't look the same to everybody, doesn't feel the same to everybody, right? And so that's why I really think the qualitative piece is so important um, here. That's so true. You know, Kathy, I've been thinking lately about how we assign meaning to sensory experiences or assign valence to our subjective experience. Think about something like, you know, a hand on your back um, and how your brain body system interprets that tactile input. And, you know, for some, maybe someone with um, uh, adverse child experiences or, you know, a trauma history who's in an elevated, maybe sympathetic arousal state, my um, neuroceptor interpret that um, light tactile experience as being scary or threatening or negative in valence um, versus, you know, someone who's able to regulate the nervous system or, um, or through nervous system regulation can change the way that they experience that sensory input will ultimately affect how they talk about it, right? How they describe it and how they interpret that, uh, that input. Yeah, it's so fascinating. I mean, you know, I, um, I, I, think, I think we're at the tip of also learning more about um, the relationship between mental health and sensory processing and, and I'm, uh, uh, you know, I'm grateful for all the work that everybody is doing in, in these areas because, um, you know, we as OTs know it. Now it's time to get everybody else to understand that as well. And I think we're getting close. Yeah. Yeah. Which is super exciting. And it's fun to be able to share and people understand what you're talking about at a party. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I um, really, I could see why it's challenging to research this because there's so many like disciplines at play, even just conducting a research. Cause you got the tech people and like software people trying to do heart rate variability. And then you've got, you know, psychologists, OTs, you know, it, I could see the broad, it's a really a true mess mesh of art and science. Um, so everybody has to be on the same page. And I could see that being tricky to, to do like logistically as a study. I think it's also challenging with the nervous system to um, predict what kind of outcomes might respond to the intervention. Um, you know, in our work on the Safe and Sound Protocol, historically the clinical research has been um, on the autism population, primarily you know children and adolescents. But we're finding now, mostly through feedback from the provider community, is that it has the potential for all of these um, you know effects on mental health populations on other um, neurodegenerative conditions, neurodevelopmental conditions, learning differences. Um, uh, and so we're still learning even how to measure that change. Um, we have several studies right now ongoing with uh, PTSD population, with um, Parkinson's disease, with um, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is really interesting because of the autonomic GI connection. Um, but oftentimes when researchers you know, approach us or providers approach us about wanting to do a research project, the um, hardest thing to land on is what to measure and how to measure it. Because sometimes we, we don't know what, what will happen when we expose them to um, the tool or, or what um, secondary benefits you might see after the nervous system is able to access a more regulated state. Yeah, that's very interesting to get. All, that'll be interesting to get all that different data too. Yeah, I think it's, it'll just, it'll get there. But yeah, I think you're doing a lot of that groundwork as well as, you know, continuing what other people have already done and 
I'm sure that is, that's coming down the line. I could see also that being challenging. So thank you for all the work you've been working on. Um, so, and there's some trials on, and these are all on the safe and sound protocol or not necessarily. Correct. These are all involving the SSP. And then um, Kathy is, is partnering with us on some interesting work around the SSP and um, early intervention. Kathy, do you want to speak to what, what outcomes you're looking at for that study? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm excited to be partnering with you on this. This is um, this sort of evolved out of um, a relationship that I have with a colleague of mine who um, works at an early intervention center. She works with babies um, who are um, have a diagnosis of autism and they're between the ages of two and three. So it's a really like narrow age gap, which is nice for research, right? Um, we don't have to worry too much about the effects of development on that, you know, on that age group, but they use sensory integration practices at this early intervention clinic. They also use um, ABA practices at this early intervention clinic. So I have been sort of talking to her for a while about bringing the SSP because it's something that I've seen in my clinical practice has done um, a lot of good for a lot of people, including children with autism. But the challenge was sort of how to set this up, how we were going to do this, who, what children were going to, you know, qualify and um, et cetera, and how, um, you know, we were going to set the entire system up for this. So Rebecca has been really helpful in um, helping us begin to, you know, create something where I can go in and um, work with the people at the center to set up systems. And some of the things that we're looking at and thinking about are, you know, providing the SSP or administering the SSP through um, speakers so that, you know, we don't have to worry necessarily about babies who are A, may not be able to tolerate headphones on and B, you know, the SSP, because it's not, um, there's not different music for different specific age groups, we don't know that a child who is, who is two can tolerate what a child who is 10 can tolerate in terms of the actual music. So, um, you know, providing it in a way that may be less threatening and may be more um, inviting to the nervous system, um, we're going to, you know, trial it and see how it goes um, in terms of that. We're also going to try to find some children that we think may tolerate the headphones and try to understand, you know, um, how much of that music they are able to tolerate and how much, um, you know, what their sessions look like and in what environment um, they may be um, listening. But what the first thing that we need to do is develop outcome measures, which is what Rebecca was, you know, talking about. And so some of the outcome measures that I'm, I'm thinking about, we haven't started this planning process yet in terms of the exact measures, but is a behavioral measure um, of some sort. So that something observable in behavior and so that, um, you know, we can look at that pre-SSP and maybe six to eight weeks post-SSP. There's also, um, we wanna make sure that we're looking at goal achievement um, in this group in particular. And so I would think that we probably use goal achievement scaling because we know that goal achievement scaling or GAS goals are able to capture more of the you know, qualitative um, changes than our you know, traditional SMART goals. So we would create some goals specifically for this program that we think would be meaningful. 
Um, and we also want to do some qualitative, um, you know, pre and post um, SSP information from teachers and parents. Um, you know, really, again, trying to capture the nuanced changes that may or may not occur. Um, so, yeah, so we're beginning to think about what I'd also love to do, but I don't know if it's possible, we're still thinking about it, is I would love to get, you know, baseline heart rate variability um, pre-SSP and post-SSP. So that is a maybe in there as well. I was just going to ask how you're going to do that and trying to think through what that would look like if yeah, I measure so, those little guys' heart rates. Yeah. I mean, that, that will be a challenge. I did do it in my doctoral um, work, but they weren't that little. I did um, look at heart rate variability in response to sensation and baseline um, in kids um, with autism and kids without autism. Um, and so, but yeah, it was always, you know, not the easiest of, um, of things to get the electrodes on and on in the right place and on for a long enough period of time to collect that information. Um, but now we're in a period where I think we have some um, tools out there that make it a lot easier. So we're going to be thinking about that. Very, very cool. I think that was a great, thank you for sharing that. I, I felt like you shared that in a way it was like almost like a story that was really helpful to follow along. Um, I feel like that's a great example of the research process and how people think through, you know, creating a study and what that looks like. So I feel like that's even just do you sharing that was really valuable. So thank you. Um, cause I think it, it takes a long time to even get to that stage of conducting the study and, and how, you know, to, to really understand that is, is helpful to know how long, you know, once a paper is published, how much work goes into it up until that point. So mm -hmm. So from there, um, Rebecca, what do you want uh, OTs that are listening to kind of learn and, and use from what you found um, in the studies that you've worked on? Well, I think I would um, just highlight the uh, connection between sensory processing and autonomic state and how that might affect the way a client thinks, feels, behaves, or even responds to other interventions. We touched a bit earlier on um, the progress around better understanding sensory processing and mental health populations. And I think um, historically, I assumed um, sensory informed interventions for mental health populations would be primarily about modulation, about you know, teaching people to self-regulate. But what I'm finding in you know, the more recent literature and, and especially looking to other fields in neuroscience and, um, and psychiatric work is that there are also differences in the way that people with mental health conditions experience sensory information. So that can be changes in, uh, or differences in auditory discrimination or the way that um, sound is processed and integrated. And that might show up in motor patterns or other ways of experiencing the world. So I would just push OTs to think a bit beyond um, just the regulation piece and think more broadly about um, sensory processing and how it can um, affect other interventions. And then really thinking about not just providing sensory interventions, but really integrating them with occupation and thinking about um, the in impact on occupational performance. 100%, Rebecca, I think that's a really important point. You know, there's this, there's this, um, I 
think it's an official theory, but um, it's a theory of um, neural occupation. I don't know if you've read about it by Mary Law. And um, this is one of the theories that I used in my doctoral work. And, you know, she says, you know, she talks about the nervous system as being foundational to all our occupations, right? For, you know, varying reasons, right? That we have to have that stable base in order to be able, you know, to participate. Now, it's not as as clean as that. And there are many, you know, there's a lot of, you know, dynamic interplays and there's a lot of, you know, complexities in there, but generally speaking, right, that the nervous system is the foundation for our, for the way that we um, interact with the world, right? Um, and she calls it neuro-occupation and, you know, makes it specific to our profession of occupational therapy, which I really liked. Um, and I think that, that that really is, you know, the key. And I tell my students when we talk about, you know, I do this, um, I do uh, uh, one of the lectures that I do my adolescence class is I combine, I, I sort of combine polyvagal theory, you know, in, in a in a pretty basic sense, with interpersonal neurobiology by Dan Siegel and the intentional relationship model by Renee Taylor, right? And I combine that to say how, you know. The relationship, it's all about the relationship and connection. And that looks very different for different people, right? And we have to really um, uh, individualize what that looks like, right? For each person, because you know, again, certain people who are, you know, neurodivergent um, experience connection differently and experience relationships differently and need us to be, you know, to sort of um, be accepting of them and to understand their needs. And we need to give them what they need and be respectful of what they need as well. Um, and I'm losing track of why is it so, you know, connection and the relationship, you're 50 to 70% at achieving your goals, right? Um, because we know that, you know, goals aren't just about skills, right? Goals are about people and are about really, you know, experiencing that sense of safety and relationship and connection. And so if we can capture that in our goals, I think that's a really great place to be because it's really hard to capture, um, you know, and it's really hard to quantify. And so that's what I try to, to tell my students, try not to focus so much on the skills, but more so on the process. Um, so I think I went off a little bit there, but. Oh, I, I can't you know agree more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate the way you framed the integration of Dan Siegel's work and Renee Taylor's work and polyvagal theory and how those things interact. You know, I'm, I'm really pleased to see um, more use of sensory processing or sensory language and other um, professionals, especially in the, for mental health providers. I think something that gets missed sometimes um, by disciplines outside of OT is that um, self-regulation or sensory informed regulation is, isn't always about down-regulating, but if we consider, you know, done sensory processing model and the four quadrants and neurological thresholds that for some people more input or different kinds of inputs can help them reach their threshold to um, support self-regulation. So, you know, sometimes in, in hospitals or mental health clinics, there's this standard, you know, recommendation to meditate or using breathing strategies. And those are not bad or wrong. 
overall, right? right? Those are effective, but, you know, some people need to get up and move around or dance or listen to music. And I think um, in OT, we're uniquely positioned to consider the whole, you know, occupational experience and how we can integrate sensory strategies to be, like you said, individualized for the best fit for the client to ultimately support their performance. Yeah, I love that. And I think you're spot on there, you know, that um, there are, you know, a lot of people when they think about, you're right, when they think about regulation, they think of calming, they think of yoga, they think of deep breathing. And I think initially too, when I, when I'm working with my OT students and I'm teaching, they think that too, right? Um, they think that as well, and that regulating strategies have to be about 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 down regulating. And so we do spend you know some time talking about that um, as well as and you know strategies that you can use it. But I think you're right that in terms of especially the mental health population that we know um, need a lot of the upregulating, right? Mm-hmm. When it comes, so I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. So what I hear you saying is that the research is really helping us understand people better and how they experience the world. And we can use that information to then inform our, our clinical practice and not kind of fitting someone into a cookie cutter sensory diet. Yes. Awesome. Great. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) That's very, a very holistic approach, which I know you, you both have mentioned kind of, I feel like you haven't said the word, but have said that, that in multiple ways throughout this conversation. And even I'm just thinking Kathy about like the goals, like I'm trying to think of like an example. I know we're going back a little bit, but just even, you know, putting, putting like practically putting the environment in the goal all the time or putting, you know, I don't know, that'll be, that's a good challenge. I think I'm curious kind of where that goes. It, it is a challenge and that's for sure, right? Um, because we're used to creating goals that are about observable behavior in terms of skills for, you know, um, and so putting it more in process terms, you know, is, uh, is hard to do, but I think it's important, um, especially as we, especially in what we're talking about when we're talking about, you know, SSP, polyvagal and all of those kinds of things. I think that's really important. So uh, yeah, that was great. I really appreciated that kind of divergence of, of conversation because I think that helps. Well, I guess it wasn't really divergence. It was more how to implement um, this and what that looks like and, and how to take research and put it into action. So kind of along those lines say, you know, Hey, I'm just hearing about SSP and this is really awesome. And I want my administration and supervisor to buy, you know, buy into this. And how do I, how do I do that? How do I bring it to my OT practice? Sure. So the first step would probably be to go to the um, Unite website um, where you can connect with a program consultant who can explain more about the process for getting certified and what um, SSP subscription looks like and how to get access. Um, I'll clarify that the tool is intended for professionals. So we have um, a criteria about licensure and credentials that are required in order to train and deliver, ultimately for the safety and efficacy of the program. But as an OT, you would um, of course meet the um, requirements. Yeah, so the first step is to um, certify um, by training in the SSP and then you're qualified to deliver. Um, And the way that that looks like in practice, I think it really varies depending on who your population is and um, what your setting is. So we um, 
We support SSP as an um, adjunct or supportive therapy as opposed to a standalone or a quick fix. This is not a way to you know, solve your client's problems or you know, dissolve their auditory hypersensitivities or whatever, but it's really meant to be integrated with regulating activities and sensory informed interventions and all the other awesome things that OTs and other health uh, care providers do. That makes sense. Yeah. It's good to kind of think about, think through that process. Cause I think sometimes that can be daunting. So kind of thinking through helps, helps me at least picture what it would look like. Um, kind of along those lines, you know, if are there, is there any way to get involved in the research and to give you the information back in a way that could help the research be built from like a clinical perspective? Yeah, absolutely. We're working um, closely with Dr. Porges and his team to try to better understand indications, um, contraindications, and really where the SSP is most effective. So um, one thing clinicians can do is we're actively looking for case study submissions. So to write in and tell us how you're using the SSP for what populations, how they responded, how it was delivered, anything that you would do differently is so supportive for not only informing our clinical guidelines, but also how we um, support or collaborate with other researchers. Um, the second way is we're working towards building a real-world data, real-world evidence pool. Um, so because the SSP is delivered through a digital platform, we have the capacity or the potential to capture a large amount of data around um, for whom and how the, uh, the intervention is delivered. Of course, um, that's given that we want to be respectful of confidentiality of both patients and clients and, you know, um, following compliance with HIPAA policies and regulations. Um, but we're working towards through the UNITE assessments tool and through the um, digital data that's available through the MyUNITE dashboard that um, hopefully in the, you know, in the future, we can start to make some connections between what's um, how the way that providers are delivering and, and what we're seeing as far as changes in standardized assessments. And can I just, um, you know, chime in here as a, a provider that uses SSP and has been using it. I, I, you know, I was so excited to see the SSP um, come in to be, to being um, whenever it was, however many years ago. Was it, was it five years ago about? I, I think so. I think you know, something like that. The last three and we've been digital the last two. I think. Yeah. And when it, when it first you know, came about because again, of my familiarity with polyvagal theory and my doctoral work, I, when, when this came, I was like, yes, like, this is it. Like, I was really, really excited. And I've used it a lot with a lot of different types of clients with different types of needs. Um, and, and what I can say is, as a provider is to, um, you know, I think it really takes um, clinical reasoning and critical thinking skills to utilize it effectively and efficiently. And it's not like a cookie cutter kind of thing. And I think you have to really, really understand that um, when you're going in, if you think you're gonna go in and get like a recipe um, for how to exactly how to do it with every single client, that's not going to happen. But utilize the resources that Unite and ILS provide you with to ask questions, to continue to think, um, about you know all the um, all the factors that are involved in um, and in and involved in and with using the SSP with any individual because each time it will be different. 
Thank you for naming that, Kathy. I mean, that really speaks to some of the challenge of translating clinical research to clinical practice. So when we, the safe and sound protocol was first studied, it was delivered in a pretty, you know, discreet formula in this one hour a day consecutive five day protocol in a lab environment with lots of controls. But of course, we're finding, especially as we apply the SSP to a broader range of populations, that their tolerance and response um, varies quite a lot person to person, depending on their presentation and autonomic tendencies, their sensory preferences, um, you know, neurological and other differences. So the, um, the titration is really important to the um, efficacy of the delivery. So knowing how to pace and dose the SSP secondary to how your client's responding is, um, is really important and, and can be a, a nuanced quality of delivery. Yeah, I know that's always the challenge of um, effect I'm going to get this wrong, which way it goes, but effectiveness studies versus efficacy, you know, for a long time, it was the focus was on efficacy to be able to say this one thing changed this one thing. Uh, but, but then you have to unpack it and put it into the real world. And is it better to start the study in the real world? Like, I think that's kind of the question that, I mean, I don't know if that's, that's, you know, I'm sure researchers, uh, existential question, but I think that's just an interesting, um, you know, interesting to think about as, you know, maybe if you're not involved in research, kind of that process too. Yes. I think, I think it is interesting. And I, and I think, you know, there are different stages of research, right. And it goes sort of like, you know, I think you have to start with removing everything, right? So that you can have a better understanding of that, that one thing, right? And then as you go and as you learn more and as, uh, you know, then you can add back in to really, um, you know, look at the um, interactions and integrations um, of different factors um, into this one intervention, let's say. Yeah, it's definitely a process. It's a creative process as we talked about at the beginning. It's it's not a, you know, you do it once and then you leave. It's, it's always updating and, and ever changing, which I think is the great, this is a great topic for, for kind of that, that thought process around, there's not enough evidence on it. So I'm not going to use it or I'm not going to learn more about it and really leaning into that and saying, okay, what is, what's, what is this intervention and where is it at and where is it going? Um, and where is it on that kind of pro trajectory? Um, I think that is again, using clinical reasoning, you know, towards, you know, putting research into practice too. Uh, it's something that I feel like I'm learning more about and, and getting, widening my window a little bit of tolerance of, uh, of what, you know, could be something that is, could be really beneficial and then to not throw something out too soon. So well said, Katie. It, it's really hard to um, have high quality clinical trials for every indication for every intervention. And, you know, there's always limits in those designs and they don't you know, apply to everybody that you might be treating. Um, and it takes time to build up an evidence base, right? You know, to get 50 participants to participate in a high quality intervention study is quite an effort I'm <laughs> finding. Um, and I think that's where this um, integration or opportunity for real world data gets really interesting. You know, um, you know, theoretically we could gather a thousand data points from, you know, a thousand clients, um, you know, over the next year using the digital dashboard, um, you know, both for 
supporting our own understanding of the tool, but it's also a very rich data set that can be available to researchers. So rather than, you know, designing the intervention, um, you know, delivering and recruiting participants, we can almost work backwards to say, here we have this huge data set with these different populations with different qualities, and here's the different ways they were delivered. How can we make sense of this data to better inform how we might study in the future or how we might, um, you know, guide delivery or, you know, so much we can take from it. Yeah. I think that is why I feel like as OTs, you know, we can give so much back to the research community from our clinical perspective. So it's really important to, to remember that and, and not undervalue that for sure. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca and Kathy. It was a great conversation. I'm really excited to really get this out in the world and share it with, um, people who are, have these questions and are, are kind of wrestling through this right now. And, uh, to learn a little bit more about what, uh, polyvagal theory is and the safe and sound protocol. Uh, I think this will be really helpful and a great resource, you know, time and time again. So thank you for being here. Thank you, Katie. Yeah. Thanks for having us. I really enjoyed this conversation with Rebecca and Kathy. I think it was great that they shared how to get more involved by submitting your own case studies. So I've included the form to do that in the show notes. If you have any trouble or have any questions, feel free to email me at katie at otgraphically.com. I also wanted to share a little bit more about our membership, the OT Graphically Library. Where this is a place where OTs um, from all around the world gather and we share research and through the use of infographics, have journal clubs where we help each other be able to implement these interventions into our practice and problem solve through that via live journal clubs. Um, and then we also just added a course called Becoming Evidence-Based. If that's something that's interesting to you, definitely head over to our website at otgraphically.com. Thanks so much for listening.